Amen. Amen. Good morning. We're going to be in the book of Leviticus this morning. Everyone's favorite book, book of Leviticus, third book of the Bible. We're continuing our series uh, through the Pentateuch. The, the Pentateuch is the name given to the first five books of the Bible. Penta meaning five, tuk from the word for book. So for five books, pretty descriptive. <laughs> the name for the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. We're doing a 30,000-foot view of these books as we're kind of looking at uh, just from a, a, a wide view. What is this book saying? So two weeks ago, we talked about Genesis. Last week, we talked about Exodus. This week, we're going to talk about Leviticus. Before we get into that, I want to I clarify something I said at the end of the service last week. So uh, last week, uh, I mentioned, we were talking about kind of being the people of God, and I mentioned uh, and kind of talked about membership at the end of last week, and I, I was making the distinction that um, that being a member of the people of God and being a member of a local church are not necessarily the exact same thing, that you can be a member of the people of God and not a member of a local church, and you can be a member of a local church and not a member of the people of God. And what I meant by that is that ju- there are plenty of people who have their names on a church's role that are not Christians. So just having your name on a church role doesn't make you a Christian. And, and what I did not mean is that you can, we think it's okay to be a church member and not a Christian. <laughs> like, we, we have a, a multi-step process to become a church member here at Freedom Fellowship because we firmly believe that we want, we want to the best of our ability to determine that all of our members are people that have been born again, who have trusted in, and placed their faith in Jesus, and they're walking with Christ. That's, that's, uh, that's what we believe. That's what we practice. And so I want to just clarify that, that uh, you, you can be a member of a church, have your name on a roll, and not be a Christian, but we do not want that to be the case here. <laughs> we want it to be the case that every member is a follower of Jesus. So I wanted to clarify that, and we get into the, the text Leviticus this morning. Let me pray for us, and we'll get into the book. Heavenly Father, I, I thank you for your word, and I thank you that you have created for yourself a people. God, that you have drawn a people for yourself out from the world, and God, that, that we, by faith in Jesus, are able to call ourselves your people, that we, we have citizenship in your eternal kingdom, that we know that when we, when we die, we will stand face to face with you and, and be welcomed into your presence for all of eternity. God, we are your people by faith in Jesus, and we celebrate that this morning. We pray, Father, as your people, that we would hear from you, from your word this morning, that we would, we would study it to to hear what you're saying to us, that you would speak to us, and we would have ears that are, that are open to hear it, and God, hearts that are, that are ready to apply what you're saying to us this morning. Father, we pray that we would be better because of our time in the Word, that you would mold us and shape us collectively into the image of Jesus. We love you, and we praise you, and it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Uh, as I mentioned, we're in Leviticus this morning, and uh, it, is, it is not everyone's favorite book. Right, so going into uh, the last two weeks, we talked about Genesis, we talked about Exodus, and, and those are two pretty exciting, interesting books. They're two books that generally people enjoy, people like them, right? Genesis is a, is an, a, a book full of exciting stories and fascinating characters. Right? In the book of Genesis, you get creation, you get Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, the, the Tower of Babel, Noah and the Flood, you get Abraham, you get Jacob and Esau, you get Joseph and his coat of many colors, right? Like you get all of these interesting people and stories. And so Genesis, as you read through the book, you're like, this is, it reads like a novel and it's a fascinating book. And then you get into Exodus and the book of Exodus is full of some of the the most iconic moments in the entire Bible, right? Like Exodus has the 10 plagues. It has Moses marching in front of Pharaoh's throne and saying, let the people of God go. 
right? Literally movies have been made about the book of Exodus. You get the parting of the Red Sea and the Israelites crossing through on dry ground. You get the Ten Commandments and God giving the Ten Commandments on the mountain. So, so as you're reading through the Bible, anyone that's starting from Genesis and going to Revelation, you get to Genesis, you, you read through Genesis, you read through Exodus, and, and you probably enjoyed those two books. And then we run smack into the book of Leviticus. I have this really, this really, uh, this vivid memory uh, from when I was a child living in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, I was sitting in church, and there was a group of people who were on stage talking about what God was, was doing in their life as they were reading through the Bible. So they were, they were each doing kind of this different program that, that, w- that helped them read through the Bible in a year. And so they were talking about this program and, and were sharing all that God was doing in their life. And I remember this one woman got up. And she was introducing us to this program that, that was helping her read through the Bible, and she was really excited about it. And in introducing the program that she was doing, she told us about the times in the past that she had tried to read through the Bible and failed. And this is exactly what she said. She said, I read Genesis and loved it. And then I read Exodus and loved it. And then I got to Leviticus. And she did this, like, L on her head and did, like, a uh afterwards. And she's like, Leviticus, uh. And then that's, so when I think of Leviticus, that's the image that's seared into my brain. It's just this, this woman that looks like Tina Fey standing on a stage at church going, oh, like, <laughs> it works because the L for Leviticus too. Like it, that's the image that is just seared in my brain. I don't know what image plays in your head and you think about the book of Leviticus. Some of you this morning are probably figuring out for the first time that there's a book called Leviticus in the Bible, and that's okay. Uh, but some of you, if you've read the book of Leviticus or you have, uh, you've heard people talk about Leviticus, you, odds are you probably have a similarly negative opinion of the book of Leviticus. And the reason people generally have negative opinions of the book is because it's, it's a book of laws. Like from beginning to end, it's, it, is, it is filled with just tedious uh, legislation like these, you, you, uh, and regulations for daily lives. Like these are the things that you need to do. These are the things that you can't do. Uh, and it's just, it goes on and on regulating every aspect of, of civil life and religious life and personal life. And it's, it's just a tedious list of laws. And so you read through it and you're like, what do I do with this? Like, how, how do I apply this? It's a, it is a brutal read <laughs> as you're kind of going through it. And so this morning, uh, I, I want to I impress upon you that I, I firmly believe the text in 1 Timothy, uh, or 2 Timothy, when, when Paul says that all Scripture is inspired by God. All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for correction, for reproof, and for training in righteousness. That's not all Scripture but Leviticus. That's all, all Scripture. Right? Every single bit of God's spoken, breathed word is profitable for us. And so this morning, my goal is not to get you to love the book of Leviticus and that it's, the, it's your go-to study book and the one that you want to talk about all the time. But I do want us to understand what the book of Leviticus teaches. And I want us to know and understand how to, how to read it, how to interpret it, and how to apply it to our lives because it is part of Scripture. It's part of God's Word. And it is vitally, vitally important that we know how to read it, interpret it, and apply it to our lives. Now, if we're going to interpret the book of Leviticus, we have to keep it within its context with the rest of Scripture. We do the book a disservice when we pull it out of its context, because the book of Leviticus actually doesn't stand alone as a book. It's not a solo work that was authored by, by Moses. Moses wrote it as part of these five books, the Pentateuch, and specifically the book of Leviticus is really attached to the second half of the book of Exodus. Think back with me to last week. God delivered his people from slavery in Egypt. 
He rescued them from slavery, right? Think of all the, the ten plagues and Moses let, let God's people go and the, the Red Sea parting. Like God rescued his people from slavery, brought them to, uh, to Mount Sinai. And on Mount Sinai, God made a covenant with his people, what we call the old covenant, a promise that said, you will be my people and I will be your God. But if you're going to be my people, you have to follow these rules. In order to be my people, you have to, to be perfect in these things. And he lists out the rules. We know them as the Ten Commandments. He, he gives them these rules and says, these are what you have to follow if I'm going to be your God and if you're going to be my people. And then he gives a lot of really specific rules that, that govern every little bit of our lives, uh, political life, uh, religious lives, uh, relationships. He gives all these specific rules, and they're meant to show what it looks like to, to, to put these Ten Commandments in practice as a nation. And so they have to follow all of these little laws and they have to be perfect in all of these little laws if they're going to be God's people and God is going to dwell among them. That's the, that's the covenant. That's the promise. You follow these rules, I'm going to be your God and I'm going to live among you. And the book of Leviticus is a continuation of those laws. They're still on Mount Sinai. God is still talking to Moses. And if you see repeated throughout the book of Leviticus, you can look in chapter 1. You can see the very first verse of chapter 1. It says, The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, and then list a rule. And that, that happens throughout the book of Leviticus. God says, hey, Moses, tell the people of Israel to do this. Hey, Moses, tell the people of Israel they have to do that. Hey, Moses, tell the people of Israel they have to be this and that. And so it's just a, it's a continuation of these list of rules that the Israelites have to follow if they're going to be God's people and if he's going to dwell among them. And so that's the, that's the general gist of the book of Leviticus. And this is the idea that we get from the book of Leviticus. That God's presence demands a holiness that we are incapable of achieving. If God is going to dwell among us, if we're going to be the people of God, and God is going to, to dwell among us, that requires a perfection and a holiness from us that we cannot measure up to. The, technically, the, the only... Only the first part of that idea is found within the text of the book of Leviticus. So that's where we're going to start. The idea that the presence of God demands holiness, that's what's found within the text of the book of Leviticus. So we're going to start there because throughout the book of Leviticus, we get to see two sides of that idea, two different sides of the same coin. And the first part that we get from the book of Leviticus is that where God resides, holiness is required. Where God lives, where God dwells, Holiness is required there. Now, if, if you've been with us the last two weeks, we've kind of walked through the book of Genesis. We've walked through the book of Exodus and kind of followed it sequentially as we, got, we went through the stories. But Leviticus is not a story. It's not a narrative. So we're not, we're not going to go through it sequentially. I just want us to hit the, the high points, the high notes. So turn with me to Leviticus chapter 19. In chapter 19, we get what you could call the thesis for the book of Leviticus. This is one of the, the key verses, key themes in the book of Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 1. God is, is speaking to Moses. This is where we read Leviticus 19, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. So the idea throughout the book of Leviticus, and this is the thing that's repeated again and again, is God tells Moses that the Israelites have to be holy if he's going to dwell among them. 
they have to perfectly follow these rules. They have to be perfect and pure people if God is going to live within them. Essentially, to say it another way, if God is going to live with the Israelites, then the Israelites have to perfectly conform themselves to the character of God. Because if God is going to dwell somewhere, holiness is required. The Israelites have to be perfectly aligned with what God has revealed himself to be. They have to be perfectly aligned with his character and who he is. We see that uh, throughout the book of Leviticus, but we can, uh, we can get a glimpse of that. Look at, look at me, the second half of verse 10. So God is, is listing out these rules, and he gives them a rule in verse 9 and verse 10. And look at me at the very end of verse 10. I am the Lord your God. Look at me at the very end of verse 12. He gives them another rule and says, I am the Lord. Verse 14 gives them another rule, I am the Lord. Verse 16 gives them another rule, I am the Lord. Verse 18 gives them another rule, I am the Lord. It goes again and again and again and again throughout the book of Leviticus. The idea is that they have to align themselves with the character of God. They have to be holy like God is holy if God is going to live there. Because God's nature demands that that the, the, the... the place that he's going to live, be holy. God cannot have unholiness in his presence. He is the perfect, almighty, all-powerful, supreme creator God. And he cannot have unholiness in his presence. So if God's going to dwell somewhere, if God is going to live somewhere, if, if, if the Israelites are going to be his people, that means that they have to be holy have to align themselves with his, with his character. Think about your nature for a second. Like my nature, uh, there are requirements on my nature that, that limit the places that I can live. Right? So I prefer the cold. I have always preferred cold weather, and I am in the wrong state for that. I know that, right? Like it's, it's 90 degrees today, and it's October, right? Uh, and, uh, but my nature allows me to live somewhere where it's 115 degrees in July. It's not my preference, and weather-wise, right? But my nature allows me to live here. I didn't melt this summer. I got close. I didn't melt this summer, right? My, your nature allows you to live pretty much most places on earth. My, but my nature does not allow me to live on the sun, right? Because it is against my nature to live somewhere where it is 5,000 degrees, right? Like, it, it does not work, right? I, I naturally cannot do that. In the same way, it is against God's nature to dwell where unholiness is. Where God dwells, unholiness is required. God cannot dwell where unholiness resides. They do not mix, because God is a holy, perfect, almighty God. And so if, if the Israelites are going to be his people, and if God is going to dwell among them, they have to be holy. They have to perfectly align themselves to God's character. And the same goes for us. If we're going to be God's people, and if we're going to, to make it to heaven, if we're going to be a part of God's eternal kingdom, we have to be holy. We can't expect to, to walk into heaven, to, to, to walk into the eternal kingdom, into the presence of God, carrying our sinfulness and our brokenness and our unholiness because God won't allow it. His nature requires holiness. Where God resides, holiness is required. And that leads us to the other idea kind of throughout 
uh, the book. Actually, uh, look, this is confirmed again in chapter 20. Uh, look, chapter 20, verse 22. So God, God gives them uh, some more rules, some more things, and, and he tells them about clean animals and unclean animals. Uh, he he uh, guards them against uh, child sacrifice and sexual morality. So after listing even more rules, notice what he says, chapter 20, verse 22. God says, you shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my rules and do them that the land where I am bringing you to live may not vomit you out. And you shall not walk in the customs of the nations that I'm driving out before you, for they did all of these things and therefore I detested them. But I have said to you, you shall inherit their land and I will give it to you as a possess to possess a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God who separated you from the people's. You shall therefore separate the clean beast from the unclean and the unclean bird from the clean. You shall not make yourselves detestable by beast or by bird or by anything with which the ground crawls, which I have set apart for you to hold unclean. You shall be holy to me, for I am, the, I am holy and have separated you from the peoples, that you should be mine. If God is going to dwell among the Israelites, if they're going to be his people, they have to be holy. There's no way around it. And that gets us to the other side of the coin, the other idea that we get throughout the book of Leviticus. Not only is it true that where God resides, unholy, or where God resides holiness is required, but where unholiness resides, God's presence is destructive. Where unholiness lives, where, where there is unholiness, the presence of God would be catastrophic for the unholy. Right? Uh, look with me. Back a few pages to chapter 15. Part of the reason that people really hate Leviticus is because it is a, it's just a barrage of different rules, right? Like of all different types of things. He gives them rules about the, the clean animals, unclean animals. He gives them rules about bodily discharges. He gives them rules about skin disease. Like he gives them just a whole bunch of different rules of how to treat people. Because the idea is that the Israelites have to be clean. They have to be pure. They have to be holy. Look with me in verse 31 of chapter 15, after giving them some more rules. He says this, verse 31. Thus you shall keep the people of Israel separate from their uncleanness, lest they die in their uncleanness by defiling my tabernacle that is in their midst. So what God tells Moses is that the Israelites have to be clean. They have to be pure. They have to be holy because God's tabernacle, God's dwelling place is in their midst. And if they are unclean, they will die in their uncleanliness. <laughs> if they are impure, if they are unholy, God will take them out because his tent dwells among the Israelites. And if God's going to live there, holiness is required. And if unholiness is present in the presence of God, God will take care of it. I think about the sun. When I approach the sun, if I, if I attempted to live there, I, I, it is this body of flesh and bones that would burn to a crisp, right? As I, as I approached the, the, the surface of the sun with 5,000 degrees, as I got anywhere near it, it is my, my fleshly, imperfect body that would, that would burn to a crisp anytime I got anywhere near it. But when unholiness meets the presence of God, it is not God that melts away. Right? God is not the one who shrinks back and says, all right, you can have your space. When unholiness meets the presence of God, God deals with it. 
It's not okay for unholiness to be in God's presence. And God's not going to say, okay, I'll just, I'll give you your space. I'll get out of your way. You can, you can do your thing over here. When there's unholiness in God's presence, he takes care of it. And we see that in the two stories that we get in the book of Leviticus. The Leviticus is mostly laws, but there are two short stories that we get in the book. Turn with me to chapter 10. The first story we get is at the beginning of chapter 10, and it immediately follows the events in chapter 9, which is kind of funny how that works. But in, at the end of chapter 9, God gives uh, all of these rules regarding sacrifices that the priests are able to make and what the priests are to, how the priests are to function, all the ways that the priests are to, to operate and approach the tabernacle. He gives all these rules for the priests. And then verse 22 of chapter 9, we, uh, it says, Then Aaron brother of Moses, the high priest. Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. He came down from offering the sin offerings and the burnt offerings and the peace offerings. So, so Aaron's doing what he's supposed to, making all these offerings to God, and he comes down. Verse 23, Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting, and where, when they came out, they blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell to their faces. So we get, again, just this, this wonderful moment where God is in the camp. Right, we get this, this reminder that God is dwelling among his people. And God reveals his glory. Fire shoots out of the tabernacle to, to consume the sacrifice. Like it is a clear reminder to everyone. God is here, which is a great thing for the people of God. But a horrible thing for unholiness. It is a horrible thing for anybody engaged in imperfection and anybody who's impure and unholy. And we see that in verse, chapter 10, verse 1. We meet Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu. It says, now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer, our little bowl, and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had, had not commanded them. So af right after, God gave them all of these rules saying, this is how the priests are to approach me. This is how the priests are to operate. Uh, Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu said, we're going to do whatever we want. We're, we're going to approach God in whatever way we see fit. Like he, they completely ignored all of the rules that God set out. And they put this fire before God and they were walking up towards the presence of God. And, and, and this is how God responds in verse 2. Fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them. And they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. So when Nadab and Abihu were unholy, when they were imperfect, when they broke the rules that God had given them and approached the presence of God, the presence of God destroyed them, consumed them by fire. Because where unholiness resides, God's presence is destructive. We get the second narrative in the book of Leviticus in chapter 24. Turn all the way with me to, to chapter 24. In chapter 24, we meet a guy who uh, is just a young man in, in, among the people of Israel. We see this, chapter 24, verse 10. It says, Now an Israelite's, uh, Israelite woman's son, whose father was an Egyptian, went out among the people of Israel, and the Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel fought in the camp. Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name and cursed. Then they brought him to Moses. His mother's name was uh, Shalomith, and the daughter of Dibri, and the tribe of Dan. 
They put him in custody till the will of the Lord should be clear to them. So we get this guy who goes out among the Israelites and he fights with another Israelite. And while he's fighting, he blasphemes the name of the Lord and he curses. And we don't know exactly what he said, but it, it means that, that while they're fighting, he could have said something like, like forget God, he, he can't help you in this situation. God, not even God can save you from this, from this situation, right? He's lying about who God is. He's blaspheming the name of God. We don't know exactly what he said, but it's clearly unholy. It's clearly impure. It's clearly blasphemy against God. And they're waiting to see what God wants to do with him. Right now, if, 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 it's, if it's you or me and we're judging this guy, this probably sounds like a misdemeanor, right? Like write him a ticket, tell him to watch his mouth, and move on with your day, right? This doesn't seem like that big of a deal. But what does God say? Verse 13. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring out of the camp the one who cursed, and let all who heard him lay their hands on his head, and let all the congregation stone him, and speak to the people of Israel, saying, Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him, the sojourner as well as the native. When he blasphemes the name, shall he be put to death. So this guy blasphemes the name of God. He curses God. And God's response is uh, to tell all the people of Israel to pick up stones and to throw them at him until he dies. And God, God, God says, he, anyone who blasphemes the name of the Lord, anyone who's unholy, anyone who's impure is going to die. He's going to bear his sin because God cannot be in the presence of unholiness. So even this thing that seems like a minor infraction, even this thing that seems like it's not a big deal, God says, we can't have it. Just pick up stones and throw them at him until he dies. Where unholiness resides, God's presence is destructive. God cannot be in the presence of unholiness. And so it's for us to think that we can just walk into heaven with our sins and our brokenness and our rebellion against God, our unholiness, to just walk in and act like God's going to accept us, it's completely out of character for God. God can't just act like our sins don't exist. He can't just act like our unholiness doesn't exist. His nature won't allow it. God cannot have unholiness in his presence. So if he's going to dwell among the Israelites, they have to be perfect. And if he's going to dwell among us, we have to be perfect. And if we're going to be able to spend forever and eternity, uh, forever and ever in heaven, then we have to be perfect. Because God can't have unholiness in his presence. The book of Leviticus uh, near the end gives us a list of blessings and curses with the law. He says, if you follow all of these rules, if you are holy, if you are clean, if you are pure, then I'm going to give you all of these blessings by residing with you. He says, I'm going to give you, you're going to defeat your enemies. You're going to have a, a bunch of kids. You're going to have uh, plenty of food. You're going to have prosperity. Like, I'll give you all of these blessings. But if you're imperfect, if you're unholy, if you're impure, then the presence of God is going to result in curses for you. He says, I will give you curses. And he kind of flips the blessings and says, you'll, have, you'll be defeated by your enemies. You'll have barrenness in your womb. You'll have uh, famines and pestilence. You'll have all of these issues as curses on you as, because God's, uh, you're unholy. And if God is present, it's destructive. I want us to, to recognize and notice that God cannot be in the presence of unholiness. If we're going to be the people of God, we have to be holy. We have to be perfect. If we're going to earn our way to heaven, we have to do it 100% and be perfect. 
And that's where the book of Leviticus ends. It's the very end of the book, right? God's presence demands holiness. The end. And so we look at the book of Leviticus as Christians or as people today and wonder, what do we do with this? Or like, how do we, how do we read this? We, we read the laws and we, we're like, do we need to follow all of these, raw, all of these laws? Do we need to, to follow some of these laws and not others? Like we, do we, can we eat bacon and shrimp? Like that's the big question for a lot of us. Like can we, can we do those things? Because they're forbidden in the book of Leviticus. Like we open up the book of Leviticus and we point to a verse and say, this shows that you shouldn't be gay. And we, but we, don't, we ignore a verse a few chapters later that says that you can't wear clothes that are of mixed cotton. Right? Like we point to a verse in Leviticus and say, this is why you shouldn't have tattoos. And then we, we flip over a few verses later and we don't give an offering to a temple when our wives give birth. Like we don't, we follow some of the laws and not others. We don't know what to do with the book. How do we read this? How do we, how do we handle this? In order to understand what to do with the book, we need to take a step back. That's why I said only the, the first part of the main idea that I said this morning comes from the text of the book of Leviticus. God's presence demands holiness. But if you, when you take a step back, you get a more complete picture when you see that the idea that God's presence demands a holiness that we cannot achieve, that we are completely incapable of achieving. If we take a step back, I want us to look at why did God give the old covenant in the first place? Why did God give them the covenant at Sinai at all? Why did he list out all of these rules and say you have to follow these in order to earn salvation? Because in the book of Genesis, from the very beginning, God promises that he's going to bring a redeemer. He's going to give the world a savior. And that's been God's plan all along. That from the very beginning, we, we are tracing the line of people that the savior is going to come from. So God's plan has always been to give the world a savior. And on top of that, the way that he's promise that he's going to give salvation is by faith in that savior we see that in genesis with abraham it says that abraham is is declared righteous he is made right with god and the way that he's made right with god is not by following rules it's not by earning it it's not by doing anything external the way that he's made right with god is by believing in the promise and so God's plan has always been to give people salvation by faith in the promised Savior. That has always been his plan. So why now in the old, do we get the old covenant? Why does God give this covenant that says, well, I want to bring a Savior, but you can also earn your way to heaven if you just follow all these rules and if you're perfect? Why does he give the old covenant at all? God gives the covenant not to give us a way to earn salvation, but to prove that we can't. God gives this old covenant as a way to make evident and clear to everybody that you cannot measure up to God's standard of perfection. You will never meet the standard of holiness required to be the people of God. You will never measure up to it. You will not check all of the boxes. You will not follow all the rules. There's never been a single person in the history of the world other than Jesus, who we'll get to in a moment, who has been able to follow all of the rules and to live a perfect life that has been holy and pure and clean before God. None of us measure up. So God lays out this plan and says, if you just follow these, if you're just obedient, you can earn heaven, you can earn my presence. And he did that to show us that we can't and we are in desperate need of a Savior. So as we approach the book of Leviticus, there are, there are kind of three steps that I want us to follow as we, as we read it and, and try to interpret it and apply it. And the first one is to realize, that, realize our status before a holy God. 
that, that's going to be the biggest takeaway of the book of Leviticus. If you read it, the, the number one thing that you should read out of it is that you do not measure up to the standard of holiness required to dwell in the presence of God. You cannot measure up. And so those of us that think that we're good because we're good people and that we're on, we're, God's going to let us into heaven because we've, we've checked off different boxes and we've gone to church and we've, we've said some prayers and, and we're a better person than other people, the book of Leviticus makes it very evident to, to us that we do not measure up. We do not meet God's standard of holiness. And so our status before a holy God is not pretty. As we read the book of Leviticus, that, that has to be the starting point. We are not in a good spot with God. God isn't going to just forget about our sinfulness. He isn't going to just forget about our brokenness. He's not going to let us in to heaven and to let us into his eternal kingdom because we're a better person than Dahmer or Hitler or that neighbor of yours that throws parties that last a little bit too late. Like God doesn't, he's not just going to let us into heaven because we're better than so-and-so. God's standard is holiness, perfection, and we do not measure up. As we read the book, as we see the old covenant, it is evident to us that we do not meet God's standard and we realize our status before a holy God. And to go from there, second step, is to take a step back and rejoice that God made a new covenant. Praise the Lord that this isn't the only way to heaven. Praise the Lord that we don't have to earn it, that we don't have to check off all the boxes. Right? Praise the Lord that God's plan has always been to provide a Savior. And that he did provide a savior in Jesus. The beginning of the book of Leviticus begins with nine straight chapters, about, uh, or seven straight chapters about offerings. It's all about these are the different kind of offerings that you need to offer up when you fall short of God's standard. So even within the book of Leviticus, there's a little bit of an understanding that you're going to fall short. Like you're going to sin against God. You're, going, you're, you're not going to meet the standard of perfection. So God gives all of these different sacrifices that need to, they need to offer up to appease God. And, and in, Gen in, in Leviticus chapter 16, we get this event called the Day of Atonement. It's this feast and festival that takes place one day a year where the high priest offers up a sacrifice for the people of Israel, and he takes the blood, and he goes into the middle of the tabernacle where the presence of God dwells, where the Ark of the Covenant is, and he sprinkles the blood before God as a, as a way to make a sacrifice or a payment for the people of Israel so that their sins could be blotted out and forgiven. What the writer of Hebrews tells us is that the blood of bulls and rams and goats, none of that saved anybody. The blood of animals was not capable of providing salvation for anybody. All of those things pointed forward to the one who would. All of those things pointed forward to Jesus. The Day of Atonement is a wonderful picture of what Jesus accomplished on the cross, that Jesus gave up his life, poured out his blood as a payment, as a sacrifice for us, and then he stepped into the presence of the Father and he poured out his blood and said, this is going to cover my people. This is going to provide forgiveness and sanctification and salvation and redemption for my people. And he pours out his blood before the Father. Like that, it is pointing forward to the one who actually provides salvation. The interesting thing about the old covenant is that it's the only covenant in the entire Bible that God doesn't introduce by saying this is an everlasting covenant between you and me. It's the only one. Every other covenant, he says, this is an everlasting covenant. Between you and me, it's going to last forever. Not the old covenant. 
Because again, God's plan was never to let people earn salvation, but just to prove that they couldn't and to point forward to the one that they needed, which is Jesus. That's why the writer of Hebrews says that the old covenant is growing obsolete and ready to die. That's what Paul says in the book of Galatians, that that we are no longer under the old law, we're no longer under the old covenant, but we have died to it, and we've been rescued from it. There's a new covenant for us, made by the blood of Jesus. There's a new way for salvation. There's a way to enter and to be part of the people of God, and it doesn't require you to check off boxes, to be a good person, and to follow all the rules. What it requires is faith in Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord. Rejoice that he made a new covenant. And God has made a way for you to be right before him. You might be wondering, if the old covenant is obsolete and ready to die, if we have died to the law, then why don't we rip out Leviticus and half of Exodus and some of the other books and throw them away and never read them because we're not under the law anymore? And and the reason that we don't do that is once again, First Timothy or Second Timothy four, that all Scripture is God breathed, inspired. Second Timothy three, sorry, all Scripture is God breathed and is profitable for teaching, for correction, for reproof, and for training in righteousness. We can still read Leviticus, and it can still be profitable and helpful for us. But we don't read it in order to say these are the rules that I have to follow to get God to love me. Because God already loves you in Jesus. You're under the new covenant. You have the favor of God if you've placed your faith in Jesus. So we don't read Leviticus. We don't read the Ten Commandments. We don't read the second half of Exodus looking for the rules that we need to follow to get God to love us. That's not how we read these texts. The third step in the way that we approach the text is that we reflect on God's character portrayed in this book. What we get to see in the book of Leviticus and in the second half of Exodus, and then Deuteronomy, which we'll get to, and parts of Numbers, like what we get to see in these laws is the character of God revealed to us. We get to see God's heart for the poor and the downtrodden in numerous laws in the book of Leviticus. We get to see God's heart for justice. We get to see God's love for his people. We see his character on, on radiant display in the book of Leviticus. A wonderful display of the character of God. And so as we read the book of Leviticus, as we, as we study the laws, as we, as we read the passages, we get to see and reflect on the character of God displayed to us in the text. And we don't read it to say, i got to follow these to get God to love me. We follow these and celebrate the God that we serve, the God that already loves us in Jesus. And we are conformed by the grace of God into that image. So as you approach the book of Leviticus, as you read Old Testament law, Reflect on the character of God displayed in the book. The number one characteristic of God that we see in the book of Leviticus is that he's holy. That he is entirely different than us, that he's on a whole other level. Right? And when we are tempted to think that we are roughly equal with him or that we know better than him, we can open the book of Leviticus and be reminded once more that God is entirely better than us <laughs> on an infinite degree. He is holy, and we are not. We rejoice in the new covenant. We rejoice that we have been made clean and pure and that we can dwell with God forever by the blood of Jesus. If you're here this morning and you have placed your faith in Jesus, that means that that we should celebrate that we uh, we have hope, we have eternal life, we can dwell with God for all of eternity, but know that you're not on God's good side because you followed the rules. 
Know that you're not on God's good side and you don't have God's favor because you've done everything right. You have the favor of God and you are right with God because of what Jesus did on the cross and because you put your faith in him. And so the goal is not to try to to resurrect the laws and to say that you have to follow these to be a good person, that you have to follow these to, to get God to love you. You don't need to place yourself back under them, but rejoice in the fact that you've been set free from sin and death. You've been set free from trying to earn your way to Jesus, to trying to earn your way to heaven. You've been set free from those things by the blood of Jesus and have been set free to eternal life because of what Christ did on the cross. Praise the Lord for the new covenant. And if you're here this morning, You've never trusted in Jesus for salvation. You've never put your faith and your hope in him that I want you to hear loud and clear from the book of Leviticus that you're not in a good place with God. That God does not tolerate good attempts. He does not tolerate the best that you can do. He does not tolerate anything short of holiness and perfection. So the way for you to be right with God is not to clean yourself up. It's not to be moral and to to learn the rules and to try your best to obey them. The way to become right with God is to place your faith in Jesus. Jesus has already done the work. He perfectly followed these. He perfectly obeyed the law. He, He had a perfect right relationship with God, and yet he poured out his life on the cross as a sacrifice for us so that through faith in him, we can have a right relationship with God. God has made a way for your salvation. And it's in Jesus. So this morning, if that's you, you've never placed your faith in Jesus. I want to invite you to trust in Christ for salvation, to to have a restored relationship with God, and to know that you are on God's good side. You have his favor because of what Jesus did on the cross. So in just a second, we're going to sing. And while we sing, I'm going to be standing right here. If you want to place your faith in Jesus for the very first time, I'd love for you to come up here. I want to pray with you, and I want to talk with you after the service about what it means to follow Jesus. We also have people in the back who would love to talk with you about what it means to follow Jesus if you don't want to come up here. And if you don't want to move during the service, if that's too much for you, that's fine. Just come find me after the service. Do not leave here without having a conversation about what it means to follow Jesus. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the the new life that we have in Jesus. Father, I I thank you for the new covenant. Because the old covenant was something that we couldn't keep. God, you eventually kicked Israel out of the land that you had promised them because they were incapable of of keeping that covenant. And God, no matter how hard we try, no matter how moral we try to be, no matter how many times we restart and start again, God, we we are imperfect people. And we know we cannot earn our place before you. The only way that we can delude ourselves into thinking we deserve heaven as if we lower the standard from what the one that you've raised. God, we know that your standard is holiness. Your standard is perfection. And God, we know that that's not a, a standard that we can measure up to. God, we thank you that you sent your son Jesus to die on a cross for us so that we didn't have to measure up to the standard of holiness, so that we didn't have to earn our way to heaven because we never could. But God, you, because of your love and grace and mercy for us, sent your son to die on a cross, and he poured out his blood to cover over our sin so that we could be holy and righteous and pure in your eyes. 
I pray this morning for anyone here that, that has not trusted in you, that have not placed their faith in Jesus for salvation. God, I pray that this morning would be the morning that they place their faith in you, that they are covered by the blood of Jesus. And God, everything about them changes as they are resurrected to, do, to new life. Father, I pray that every single one of us this morning would be able to celebrate and proclaim the new covenant that we've been set free by Jesus. We love you and praise you, and it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Again, if that